welcome to One of 200, the independent politics and media podcast. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Philip and Bronco. Uh, Philip is having some sort of sneezing fit. Uh, but Bronco, how are you doing over in the USA? Kia uh, Good, good. How's everyone here? How are you, Philip? Kia I'm well. Uh, no coughing post-COVID fits here, so all should be well. And we're joined by return guest, uh, Andre Ivanov. How are you going? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Thanks for uh, coming along to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So we're trying to do a little bit of a current events, a little bit of uh, retrospective um, today on foreign policy, um, with a specific eye on how New Zealand relates to the rest of the world. It's been something of an ongoing theme uh, in political media here since we opened back up. Uh, unquote, uh, and Ardern uh, started doing the rounds um, with our trading partners and then with some of our uh, more historical allies. Uh, we've seen a number of trade agreements. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, kind of business junketing. Uh, and we've seen some really big international issues that New Zealand has been required to respond to. Now, this was brought once again to the fore uh, this week when Ukrainian President Zelensky did an address to New Zealand's parliament, a pretty unprecedented uh, thing to occur. And we just got some, I, I don't think there's any other way to describe them than sad uh, speeches out of the leaders of our main political parties. We had Christopher Luxon, their leader of the opposition, the leader of the National Party, just almost incoherent, talking about how the UN was weak um, and how if you are in a war, you needed friends, ammunition, and something else uh, equally trite. We had the ACT Party's David Seymour saying that if if he had anything, to, uh, if he was any closer to, to power, um, Ukraine could expect far, far more uh, support than what... The current Labour government is currently doing. And we had James Shaw of the New Zealand Green Party going into a weird spiel uh, about how self-defence is not at odds with the party's uh, principles of non-violence, which is just laughable, honestly, to be using the opportunity to, to try and do whatever that was. Uh, and finally, we had uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand uh, and leader of the Labour Party, with... <laughs> Probably the most measured uh, response, uh, talking about internationalism uh, and a path to peace. The only issue is that we know that none of the policy outcomes that Labour is actually seeking uh, align with almost anything she was saying. So a really, really thin on the ground in the foreign policy space here in New Zealand. What were other people's <laughs> responses to, to this whole situation? But yeah, Andre, you're, you're guesting with us today. What was your take on the Ukrainian president getting the opportunity to, to speak to the parliament um, and the response of the New Zealand parliamentarians? To be honest with you, I missed it completely, which is really embarrassing because I've been following the uh, the Ukraine situation for a long time. But I, I guess I, I I wasn't concentrated on the New Zealand's place of it. Now, I will say two things, and I'll, I'll pose a second one will be a question. So this thing number one is... Uh, Zelensky is is clearly an actor, and he'd been doing this 
addressing various parliaments since the very beginning. His purpose is basically PR, try to get the uh, help as much as he can. Now, my personal take on that, which is supported by quite, quite a lot of stuff, is that A, he does not represent the uh, Ukrainian public's interests. Everything that he wants is basically for him. Uh, he knows that as soon as there will be a peace, he'll be out of power because Ukrainians will turn on him. So for he's not interested in peace. He's interested in uh, prolonging the conflict as much as possible because that way he gets uh, more money in some shape or form. The foreign support for Ukraine is primarily or almost, you know, I, I don't know the percentages, but almost all of it is military. None of it is towards humanitarian aid or anything like that. The Ukraine economy is short. The people don't have any uh, any means of earning money. Um, men are being conscripted into the army against their will. And it's it's a terrible humanitarian situation. Nothing that anybody is doing from the West is helping to resolve that situation. What Zelensky is doing his thing, uh, he is now in, in this current environment, which goes to the heart of our question right now, uh, it seems nobody is able to say anything even halfway measured like we need a um, diplomatic resolution rather than a military resolution as soon as you say that we need a diplomatic resolution you're immediately being cast as um, a putin apologist and whatnot so for some reason that uh, is is a no-go so i'm not surprised about anything that uh, that that the leaders of new zealand have said uh, i am even less surprised about the opposition being more hawkish because their job throughout the so outside of the very first months of the uh covid situation 2020 where everybody banded together and actually tried to be uh you know helpful outside of that period uh the opposition had been doing nothing than just saying the opposite of whatever the government was doing. And so in this particular case, because it's impossible to, to say we shouldn't uh, be supporting you know, the Kiev regime, because supporting the Kiev regime and supporting Ukrainians are two very different things, in my opinion. Since it is politically not possible to say we shouldn't be supporting the Kiev regime, uh, then the opposite of what the government is doing is we should be supporting more right? We should be sending more stuff. So that's not surprising. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, again, fits into the, what I've observed about the New Zealand opposition that uh, they're shit. No matter, <laughs> no matter what bad things the government is doing, and the government is not doing all that much, to be honest. Um, opposition is, is, in many cases, uh, just just worse. So that's that. That's the first point. The second point, and, and I'll be much shorter on that, and, and that's the question that I would like to, to pose to all of you is, what's up with all the young so-called left that's, that's basically warmongers? Uh, it, it, the situation in, when I look at the Greens, what Greens are doing here, right? And then I look at Germany's Greens, who are actually quite you know in power in Germany, they just waved 
I mean, they basically signed off on supplying Saudi Arabia with tanks. So forever they had been, we shall not be supplying uh, any weapons to any military conflicts, right? And this year they've turned completely against that, against their policy, and they just say more weapons to Ukraine, now more weapons to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Annalena Baerbock is running around saying, uh, saying one thing and doing quite the opposite. So, for example, they were talking about um, we should be dependent less on countries which do not share our values. But then apparently they're doing more with Saudi Arabia, who by all accounts does not share their values. So how does that reconcile? Uh, the uh, I also read about the funny uh, her, her trip to um, India, where she said, uh, we don't want to replace China with India, but we want to this for us. It's a value based value based um, partner. And uh, some of our values are basically uh, fair trade and democracy and all of that. And then uh, Indian foreign minister with whom she was meeting in the very same uh, meeting or in the post-meeting conference, uh, because obviously the, the Russia and the Ukraine situation came up, he said, oh, we're increasing trade with Russia. And from our point of view, uh, it'd be silly not to increase your trade whenever, whenever you can. So and we have a lot of products to, to sell to Russia. So here again, Annalena Baerbock is saying something about the values, but then uh, it, it's basically, I, I, I don't understand how that reconciles with the actual actions on, on the ground. So um, here's the question. Why is it the left that, that's, that's quite, uh, that basically is turning into warmongers? I don't think it's... Inter international left. And by, by the way, sorry, let, let, me, let me rephrase. Whatever passes for left... In the, <laughs> in the discourse is not actually left, right? So Democratic Party is not left. Even the Greens, I, I, you know, like the German Greens, I don't, I don't think they're left. So that's, but whatever passes for left, like in the, in, in the powers, because I think Die Linke, for example, is, is, is much more proper left party in Germany than, uh, than the Greens. Um, but why is it that the uh, quote-unquote progressives internationally who were, even Democratic Party, right, used to be anti-war, but now is the more hawkish than the Republicans. So so that's that's a, uh, and to me, that's actually quite a worrying trend overall. So here, here I'll leave you with that. So but the left is quote-unquote left. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think there's kind of, to, to kind of address both of those points at once, um, Maybe unhelpfully, we'll see. Um, I think it shows the success of Zelensky's PR strategy, um, which has been to target the people that may otherwise have been the kind of less sympathetic half of that spectrum. So um, while you were speaking, I was quickly looking at to looking at a list of speeches that Zelensky's given this year to organizations and um, parliaments outside uh, Ukraine, which is you know, a relatively uncommon thing in kind of the historical spectrum of these. Like, think about how many times we've had uh, a foreign president or prime minister actively directly petition New Zealand for support in, in this kind of way, right? Um, I don't remember seeing many spokespeople come this kind of aggressively uh, in, the, in the way that they're kind of petitioning for soft kind of cultural power support. So here's a quick list of uh, speeches that um, basically, can speeches. He pretty much gives the same speech every time, right? Um, to all these different organizations. 
Uh, so the NATO Summit, Grammy Awards, World Bank, Venice Film Festival, Strategic Forums, Universities, Cultural Events, New York Times, Media Events, uh, European Parliament, the uh, British, Canadian, uh, US Congress, Germany, Israel, Italy, France, Japan, Sweden, Norway, Netherlands, Australia, Belgium, Romania, Spain, Ireland, Greece, Cyprus, Finland, Korea, Lithuania, Estonia, Portugal, Iceland, Czech Republic, Slovakia. So he's he's a fast worker, right? That's a lot of speeches to give to uh, leadership outside your own country. And I think it's paying off, like the broad spectrum support that that's gained for the uh, Ukrainian, um, I suppose, the, the flow of kind of, to to quote the Finnish Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, like hard, hard support, not just soft support, but like weapons support has been pretty much um, unimpeded and accelerated. There's not a huge amount of acceptable cultural pushback in the same way as there may have been if he hadn't engaged in that strategy. And I think that's partly that kind of interfaces with um, what you're saying about the kind of progressive or, uh, you know, the, the left as we see it in, the, in a kind of political sphere in the West um, being pretty much universally on side with that strategy because it's been an extremely effective PR campaign, right? If you're, if you're going to the Venice Film Festival, you're the kind of person who also votes for the Democrats and, uh, you know, has a maybe a, a batch in, in New Zealand parlance. Big so call that kind of... for that big call. <laughs> the, the, the biggest success of all of this had been, and, and, and it was based on, in some cases, on lies, uh, such as the, for example, the um, uh, Denisova, who was the ombudsman for human rights. Uh, she went or also gave speeches to many different places, similar places, and um, I think started with the Italian parliament where she lied about uh, Russians using rape as a weapon. And she said it worked because the uh, um, several Italian MPs who had been uh, against supplying weapons to Ukraine had come after the after her speech to her and said, oh, okay, we've changed, uh, we changed our mind. And of course, she later was uh, fired by the Ukrainian government for making up these lies, which is really incredible. Uh, but that was a piece of uh, Ukrainian journalists actually doing quite a lot of uh, investigation inside Ukraine. And they found they wrote a huge expose in one of the newspapers. The newspapers are actually less um, controlled by the government than the TV stations. TV stations are 100% controlled by the government, but there is uh, still some halfway independent journalism in the, amongst the, the newspapers. And um, Ukrainian journalists did their thing. They actually found out that all of these things were lies. Uh, she admitted that they were lies, but she said, I did it for Ukraine. And uh, it worked. And so that's that's one thing. The second thing is within this um, PR campaign is the wider context. Uh, if you look at, uh, if, if you start with February this year and you go smaller Ukraine being attacked by uh, larger Russia and, you know, it's like, let's stick up for the underdog, right? So that makes sense. But if you roll this back, uh, eight years ago, then you have small Donbass being attacked by a uh, much stronger Kiev regime, and the eight years of atrocities in Donbass is somehow swept under the rug. It, they used to be somewhat reported by way back in 2014-2015, but they're no longer reported. And so from that point of view, the PR, the one-sided PR is definitely... Ukraine basically... On When I say Ukraine, it's not Ukraine. It's, I, I, I really pretty much everywhere try to separate the Kiev regime, the post-2014 Kiev regime from the rest of Ukraine. 
because Ukraine is divided. It still is divided. It's a civil war that's been going on for uh, more than eight years now. And the, 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 in my opinion, there's no other way of saying that. Uh, so within the civil war, uh, Kiev regime managed to paint this whole thing as one united Ukraine against the aggressor. And that's not the correct, that, that's, that's factually incorrect, but perceptually it is what's being presented in the West. Anyway, so so the 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 PR I, I agree with you. The PR yeah. campaign had been incredibly powerful and incredibly successful. I think like the PR is one track, right? If we're talking just to bring it back around to um independent foreign policy stuff, um PR is definitely one track of it. And you know you can go and talk to different parliaments and you can have uh, media reporting um kind of favoring you. But do we think that's significant compared to Kind of political level decisions. Um, Bronco, you look like you're about to say something. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I, the left is not, I would not say the left are warmongers. Uh, the, the left is, the international socialist left is, is deeply divided over this question. Uh, the socialist left in the US certainly is. I have friends who are uh, very gung ho on, you know, basically everything the Biden administration is doing um, and who very much take that kind of anti negotiation line, at least until recently. Um, and I also know a lot of people on the left who, who feel the opposite um, and who, you know, uh, sort of been kind of grateful for the fact that there are voices out there um, um, in, the, in the United States and in the West more generally that are kind of looking at this in a slightly more broad minded view and, and, and looking at it in a more kind of objective view rather than just kind of wanting to, to ride the, uh, the proverbial nuke like the end of uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a big division. I think part of that is, as you said, obviously the the matter at hand is a very simple moral calculus in the sense that you go you have a and and legal one. You have a, a larger neighbor invading a, a smaller one, um, and so naturally people who haven't been following this stuff very long, um, they see that and they go, oh, this is a very simple story. It's it's you know one expansionist imperialist state because that's what we always hear is, is the only thing that's going on here uh they, they want to invade a small neighbor and take them over and so you know it's a pretty simple thing about where you stand on that particular thing uh that that particular question but um there's a lot of other stuff i mean you know if we're talking about new zealand the way that new zealand relates to this um yeah, New Zealanders, we, we have a cultural uh, affinity uh, for the United States and other Western countries. Uh, we speak the same language. We consume their uh, popular culture. We consume their media as well. And so a lot of what people um, here are reading about the conflict comes from, say, the United States and, and the UK. Um, and we know that, you know, both of those respective media spheres are uh, tend to be very much in line with the particular wishes of their respective national security states, um, which of course are kind of, you know, to some extent integrated through alliances like Five Eyes and through NATO and, and so on. And so the stuff that filters down to us uh, here in New Zealand, it's going to be shaped by what those particular governments, I think, uh, want us to think about. It. Um, that, that's one element of it. And so, you know, as, as Andre was saying, that means a lot of things get left on the cutting room floor and people who haven't been following this stuff or don't um, know uh, uh, in detail the history of the conflict of, in, in Ukraine and the incredible messy complexity of it where as you say you do have a divided country and you have this country that's had two very different uh, visions of, of 
where it wants the country to go and what it wants the country to look like, um, that all gets kind of lost and flattened, you know, in the surface of this of this black and white narrative. Um, so you know, there, there's all there's there's an element of yes, uh, public manipulation and propaganda, of course. Um, there's an element of, of, of playing on, on you know, of, of using people's very uh, justified natural moral outrage and what's going on to sort of make them look away from the, the, the gray and the, and the messiness of everything that's going on. Um, but then there's also, you know, I mean, the, the United States um, and, and uh, NATO allies, they have a variety of ways to kind of strong arm uh, politicians into doing what they want. I mean, you know, and, and I think this this is where it comes down to this discussion about New Zealand's foreign policy, because the question is, do we continue to sort of blindly follow uh, everything that, that, that US officials do? Which, by the way, you know, as, as we all know, people on the left, we all know uh, the political elite of a country are not representative of, say, the public opinion uh, or the wishes and the needs of, of the public they serve. And that's uh, uh, you know, more than more than maybe anywhere else in the United States, where uh, the, the 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 people who run things are you know very very much cold to the the very desperate needs of of, of the people that they're supposed to serve. Um, uh, but we we you know we we've we tend to kind of view those two things as one and the same, and I think we we see our cultural similarities with the United States and its people um, as kind of tantamount to, to, you know, because we, we have these similarities to them, because we, uh, we, we, we do have a friendliness, um, uh, therefore that translates into, into support for everything that the political leadership does, which is, a, you know, I think two completely different things. Um, but all that, which is to say is, you know, are we going to, you know, wake up to this fact and say, okay, well, you know, the, the, the needs of the United States or the people of the United States and, and what they believe are very different from the leadership. And we have to, from time to time, uh, break from the line that the, the political elite in the United States try and push on the, the rest of the Western world. And are we going to say, you know, look, there's some things that we agree with you on. There's some things that we disagree on. Uh, on the stuff that we disagree on, we are, uh, uh, you know, going to take a pause. We sort of have done that in the past. We did that with the Iraq war, certainly. Um, although even then we sent some engineers and, and the like into Iraq to just to, to show that we were team players. So, you know, there, there's a limit, but we have done it in the past. Um, you know, and I think, I think New Zealand as a small country, it's difficult for us to do this, but there is a power in the fact that, that we are considered not the most strategically important, but we are considered strategic, strategically important by both Washington and by, by Beijing, by China. Um, and the fact that you have two rival powers um, that kind of view us as, as critical to their, well, to their, to their economic security, but also their, their foreign policy, um, that can be a scary thing because they, it's a lot of countries, including Ukraine, that have been torn apart uh, because of that. But also it does mean that, that if we play our cards right as, as, a, as a nation, that we can sort of try and tread some middle ground, you know. I mean, I always think I'm, I'm Serbian, you know, I come from former Yugoslavia. I think of, of the way that, that uh, Tito, um, you know, kind of navigated Yugoslavia through these kind of, um, uh, the, this tug of war during a cold war, you know, it was a communist state, but it wasn't aligned with the Soviet Union. 
Um, and it wasn't really aligned with the United States, but it was very happy to take uh, military assistance, for instance, and, and other aid from the United States because the US saw it as, as a bulwark potentially against Soviet influence. Um, now, that's not going to be an exact analogy to when New Zealand sits here, but there's a, a there's something to be learned there and the, and the, the idea of, you know, not 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 uh, cashing our chips in with, with uh, one or putting our eggs in, in, in one basket entirely, just trying to find somewhere to go in the middle, maybe even play one against the other. That's that's my thinking. Yeah, I think there are a few um, threads to that as well. Uh, and I want to draw us back to this idea of Western values, which is appealed to rather frequently uh, by people much further to the right uh, than than most uh, elected officials, you know, whether that's through media channels um, or fascist, outright fascist propaganda, but still holds like quite a strong uh, pull on a, a lot of colonized countries uh, like New Zealand, um, who have strong, strong inverted commas, historical relationships, especially in the foreign policy space uh, with the UK, uh, with Europe um, and with the United States. Do we think that, uh, and, and to go back to kind of some of the things that have been happening from the New Zealand side, that Ardern's address to NATO uh, earlier in the year was in line uh, with that? Or is that a significant shift um, in how New Zealand has been approaching the rest of the world? Uh, well, we've, we've talked about this a few times about the kind of, uh, it seems like New Zealand's foreign policy establishment and this Ardern Labour government in particular is kind of in some some months it seems like they're just giving up the ghost. They're just saying, look, uh, we're not independent. We never really felt like we were, and that's that's good. Like that's how it feels sometimes to me. Um, I just wanted to, as like kind of a sidebar, I I feel like there's been some a lot of talking past each other on the kind of left liberal, red lib, left of center kind of milieu, um, with the the I word like imperialism, talking about um, like what is what is that right? So there's the kind of um, the liberal or kind of progressive conception of like a big country bullying a small country is an imperialist act, right? And I think that is kind of fundamentally different to what uh, like a Marxist-Leninist, I suppose, kind of conception of the highest stage of capitalism, like competing for spheres of interest internationally in finance, that kind of conversation. So I think there's a, there's a lot of talking past each other analytically when it gets to specific examples. But as a trajectory, I think we've definitely seen a lessening of the the pretense of having an economic having a um, independent foreign policy however you want to kind of phrase that there's there's an argument that we never really had uh meaningful kind of independence i know there's um kind of strains of thought and MFAT and the foreign policy establishment in new zealand that kind of follow that kind of strategic line of thinking i heard um i think it was paul buchanan recently talking about like foreign policy flexibility as opposed to independence. And I was like, ah, that's an interesting, um, interesting word to choose. because uh, it sort of allows you to say whatever you want, right? But, but, but that, that, in itself, it. yeah. that in itself has a bit of flexibility. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's uh quickly name me a list of countries who you think are uh foreign policy independent. So United States is at the top, but who else? Well, this oh, is this is what I mean about it. Depends what you what you mean by independence, right? So, if so I think some people usefully use the word independent to mean uh, not in sphere of inch, like not following the sphere of interest of big countries. But what's the 
what's the conclusion of that? What's the ramification or outcome of that? I think is very different depending on who you ask. Like the kind of human rights-y uh, NGO types think that the benefit of that is that we can kind of speak truth to power kind of discourse, right? We can we can criticize China, but also trade with them. We can criticize the US, but also uh, go to the Venice Film Festival. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think there's there's more to it than that, right? And there always kind of has been. And the reasons we've got away with stuff over time since the, you know, the Oxford debate and Longy and all that kind of historical trajectory has been very like historically contingent or whatever the situation was in the trading situation. I think it's quite fundamentally dishonest for us to pretend that there's this like uh, this principled reason for us continuing on this way. So like in some ways you could argue that, I don't know, Costa Rica or Uruguay is more like, independent in the way that they fix their foreign policies compared to New Zealand, because they're in these kind of, in some ways, they're in these integrated groups, but the outcomes of those policies often go against what those blocks would like them to do. And they don't seem particularly bothered by that. Yeah. Whereas we kind of huff and puff about doing stuff that will piss off five eyes and never, never actually do it. There's lots of countries, I think, that are trying to chart an independent foreign policy. You know, I mean, I mean, that's, that's part of what the whole, the whole BRICS thing is about. It was trying to create, you know, this, this was the, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa. They 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 formed this back in back in the the Lula's uh, first term, I believe, as president of Brazil. And the idea was to create some sort of um, counterweight to, to U.S. power. Because remember, this was after the Cold War. There was there was no longer two superpowers. There was just one superpower. There was one hegemonic power in the globe, and it basically got to do whatever it wanted. Um, and and you know that led to disaster, like in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places. And so they were trying to 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 create some sort of counterweight by pooling together and, and trying to create this kind of multipolar world, which we keep hearing about now, um, and which may, may well be emerging out of this war. Um, so there are countries that, that do it. You know, there's lots of, I mean, as we see with the, um, with, with even the reaction to this war uh, on the international um, uh, uh, stage, I think part of the reason Luxon is saying, or oh, the UN is weak, is what he means is that, oh, the, the rest of the world or most of the rest of, uh, most of the world does not agree with the Western position on this particular uh, conflict, um, because of course most countries in the global South have not uh, really gone along. They haven't gone along with the the Western-led sanctions against Russia. They um, have also sometimes uh, uh, abstained from votes that would condemn Russia for the war, not because they they um, agree with the war or think it's fine, but because they don't see a value in. In, in basically isolating Russia either financially, uh, economically, or, or diplomatically, um, because for them, you know, they, again, this is this is part of it. They they have a very different view of the war than we do. Um, they view the war as you know it's terrible, but this is just one more war that has you know is going on in Europe or you know is involving these Western powers that have often meddled in in their own countries. So we're not going to get involved in this. We just want it to end so that things can get back to. Normal. So, you know, there is it is possible to, to chart an independent foreign policy, even if you're a, a small country, because you can try and sort of align, align yourself with, with these um, these other countries, these other nations that, that may be smaller than some of these NATO states. But in numbers, you have power. The thing is, I think I think in New Zealand, uh, we're making a political choice. I don't. Yes, we're always going to be as a small power. We're going to be buffeted by the winds of, of you know, and, and, and the whims of, of these larger uh, superpowers or, or, you know, world powers like China and the US. But we don't necessarily have to go along completely as we have been doing. I mean, you know, look, uh, Carl's point about uh, speech to NATO. I mean, look, 
during the Cold War, which lasted decades, when you know it was basically East and West, somehow New Zealand never spoke at a at a NATO leader summit. It's only now. So we Absolutely. made a choice for yeah. decades. So we are making a choice now to do something different. I think um, that, that's where I leave it. So that's that's a really good point. I I was. Uh, well, frankly speaking, flabbergasted at, at, at us going, you know, to NATO and and actually then even getting involved in, uh, you know, militarily because we are involved. We're training Ukrainian soldiers, right? It's like, why? What are we doing? Like, why? Why is why is that? Why is a conflict that we do not understand? Because I'm pretty sure that we do not. So it's it's as if like hypothetically uh, somebody from Moscow would get involved in the discussion of uh, of the Treaty of Waitangi. It, it, it's like how would we look at that, right? It, it's, we would say, well, what the fuck do you know about it? And 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 here we are doing exactly the same thing. It's ridiculous. The um, as you were talking and and as you uh, described the Yugoslavian um, uh, situation under Tito, uh, I think that. All of that. Look, there there is a pattern. Uh, Yugoslavia was well. A uh, Serbs are uh, Orthodox, so there is a uh, you know the 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 church relationship with Russia. Uh, Serbs were always uh, supported by uh, by uh, Russians before you know by the Russian Empire before prior to that, and then Yugoslavia by the Soviet Union in some shape or form. At the same time, they were um, able to build quite good relationships with the uh, United States even and um, and Germany and so on, right? Uh, but they were able to do so because they had cultural linkages to, to both. When you talk about uh, the uh, most of the global South um, abstaining or supporting Russia, and um, I, I would say that even a lot of them, uh, according to Lavrov, he he says there are a lot of uh, um, uh, people that he knows through the diplomatic means are calling him personally from the global South and are actually saying we would love to support you, but we can't. So we're going to abstain because we're, we're getting pressure from the United States and the EU to, to not do that. So a lot of this abstaining is not necessarily because they they actually see this as a uh, NATO and US proxy attack on Russia. Uh, and they I think they treat Russia as more to, to part of the global south than uh, an imperialistic uh, nation. And so they would actually support Russia from this point of view, but but they can't because of uh, they would they would run into sanctions. So they abstain. Uh, the they're able to charge this because again, they have culture wise, they do not have such strong links to the imperialist powers they do from the colonial times but their you know their let's say anti-colonial feelings are stronger than in new zealand we are in fact because for for us uh, maori is still you know that's very small percentage of the population and uh, our elites and everybody like we watch hollywood um we we are we're so you know and if it's not hollywood it's the it's the bbc stuff so and here is the litmus test, and I think that's going to come to a head, and, and I don't know how this will be reconciled. Forever, we've been part of the economic, of the Western economic world. Right now, China is so huge for us. 
that and and in the next by all accounts in the next 18 to 36 months uh maybe the probability has subsided a little bit right now i'm not sure but uh let's say a month two months ago people were talking about uh the the conflict between the us and china coming to a head now us will introduce sanctions what are we going to do because culturally we have nothing to do with china we don't have uh, our leaders don't understand chinese culture we don't have any affinity for we have huge amount or we actually have quite a lot well the same percentage as we have um of the Maori population, we have the same percentage of uh, Asian population. So we do have the uh, connections from that point of view, but let's face it, as none of our leaders uh, are, let's say, understand China, Chinese culture, but we have a huge economic, well, dependency, not dependency, but our economic interests, I think, are, are uh, more aligned with, uh, with China rather than with the uh, United States. What are we going to do? And so this is where I don't know whether we're going to be choosing a potentially you know play them against each other or somehow independent this and we might choose the values so to speak the comfort uh, zone or our leaders could choose the comfort in at the expense of the of the actual interests of new zealand as as a nation and here's where it comes back to the values the values are are uh well, I mean, it's 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 kind of I don't know whether they believe it or whether it's it it's, it sounds like a farce, right? I mean, I gave I gave an example of the uh, values politics of the German state, which is you know it's 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 uh, it's okay to demonize uh, Russia, but there's there are articles which are saying we shouldn't demonize uh, Saudi Arabia because it's a much more nuanced situation, <laughs> and then uh, you know it's like Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, but Saudi Arabia has a war in um, uh, in Yemen, right? So uh, we're supporting one, uh, we, we are totally against the other. And here's like, how do any of the values reconcile this? This is just mm-hmm. fucking farce. And by the way, my point of view is, is that uh, I, I also would like to stop demonizing anything. I think we need to get back to the uh, realpolitik, uh, you know, the, it, things need to be negotiated and win-win need, need, need to be found. I think that's the only way of, uh, of, of, doing international relations where we moved away in the last 30 years is that basically it was uh, my way or the highway by you know driven from washington and and that is uh, it's, it's not a conspiracy theory it's an objective statement and and that is no way to uh, i think to have peace in the world basically the uh, sorry I, I made a lot of things uh, in there but but really this this china is the litmus test and uh, you know values as a farce i guess the the two things uh, that that um that that are from my longish rent sorry gone that segues um directly into what i was going to say anyway which is it feels like there's been a really sharp turn over the last what 12 months um but it probably has a longer tail than that uh where we've had like this kind of identity politics or whatever you want to call it this kind of uh, third way branding exercise overlaid across geopolitics, which just absolutely makes no sense. So you have people um, referring to it's the right thing to do. This is like the morally correct thing. Um, I'm on this side. Um, If you're not on this side, you're uh, an apologist or um, you're a a bot um, or you're a paid troll or whatever. Uh, As immediate uh, and visceral responses 
to even nuanced um, and evidenced points. And I don't think we've really seen that in human history uh, to the same extent before. It's been a really interesting uh, set of media and political uh, narratives to, to watch unfold. But I think you're absolutely right about the ways in which it's going to come very much uh, in uh, contact or, or very much going to collide with reality um, around our economic relationship with China. And, you know, not only did we have the NATO address earlier in the year, um, which is like an indication from the New Zealand government that uh, they're swinging a particular way, especially with NATO's just unheard of uh kind of appeal to European countries to keep an eye on China, which is like, what are you doing? Uh, alongside that, we've also uh, stood up these free trade agreements uh, with the UK uh, and the EU, focused on a range of stuff, but with very particular, uh, very specific agricultural carve-outs as well. And we know that agriculture is one of our biggest uh, economies with China. So if we're looking at the outcomes rather than just um, kind of the China bad, United States good narrative that we tend to see uh, through through media and political speech, um, we can also make a pretty good um, case that the New Zealand uh, government or New Zealand political sphere is looking to move in reality uh, closer to the West on an economic basis as well. And yeah, I, 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 I don't know either um, which way that's going to fall. And I'm not sure like if it is the best way uh, to go about trying to tread a path. I mean, I, yeah, that, that may be what they are trying to do, but that's not going to happen. I mean, when we were negotiating the TPP with the US, the, the big thing was that basically American politicians who represent um, the, the, the US heartland, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's farming sector, were like, well, no, we can't let New Zealand have um, basically free trade status uh, with its agricultural products that would completely destroy our industry. So they're not going to let us do that. Whereas, you know, China does rely on our agricultural industry. So, I mean, like economically, that's just not going to happen. Let, let's be really clear. Uh, you know, China, the United States, Russia, I could list a whole bunch of other countries. None of these are good states. None of these are great governments with wonderful histories that have great records, either in the in the far off past or in recent history. Well, nobody uh, is. Doing nice things. I mean, the, well, exactly. And so we can't, one of the frustrating things about this debate, because it's really important, is the moralistic tone that has been taken, where it, the idea, well, you know, this, this state is bad, so therefore we should never deal with them in any way. They've done this bad thing. And of course, I mean, that, if you want to take that argument and you want to actually be consistent about it and apply it, you would have to apply that to the United States and the UK and France and Germany, who do all, all sorts of, of, of terrible and, things. I mean, and to our own, know, and the, to the, our the own transgressions in the Pacific, too. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that we went along with a lot of that stuff. I mean, we, we sent people to Afghanistan um, and our forces there committed war crimes. We, we were involved in a war of aggression, uh, not unlike Russia's. Uh, uh, so, you know, we, we need to, to kind of step away from this a little bit. Um, you know, with, with Tito and what he did with Yugoslavia, I mean, 
you know, this is not maybe the best example, but it's just because we've we've brought it up a few times. It, it is true that there were some cultural links there, but also, you know, it was it, it was the strategic position of Yugoslavia that, that allowed it to sort of be able to to play these two states off each other. And also it was um, uh, uh, the fact that, that uh, uh, Tito made a conscious choice to make Yugoslavia part of the non-aligned movement, um, which, which was a thing back in the day and, and people are trying to revive it. So there are, you know, as the world kind of goes reverts back to, to to block thinking you know you know th there's one block aligned with this state here and one block uh, this and that state over here um you know we should maybe think about the fact that maybe we shouldn't align ourselves with either thing and and do what some of these countries did countries like india as well that was another big non-aligned state um that that chose to say no you know we're not going to divide the world into these different uh segments we're, we're gonna we're gonna chart our own foreign policy we can choose to do that it's just the question is will we um just on the on the on the uh question about nato and and new zealand's economic uh uh status i mean to me europe and what's happened to europe since this war is a really uh sharp uh, uh cautionary tale or it should be for us here in new zealand because what happened based on what boris johnson has said and and you know you can read between the lines in certain public statements, there was a part of NATO, part of Western Europe that did not want to get itself involved in, uh, in, in this. You know, they may have been horrified by the invasion, but they didn't want to get involved because of the can of worms and the unintended consequences that were fallout from that, which we have already seen. Um, they were pressured to do it. Uh, they didn't stand up for themselves and they went along with it. And what's happened, the, the sanctions that they have, um, uh, 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 put on Russia, because Russia has, of course, uh, struck back with, with its own, you know, cutting off uh, oil and gas, but also those sanctions anyway are inherently going to blow back on Europe because it's dependent on Russia for its energy needs. Uh, Europe is going through a horrible time right now. It, it seems to be deindustrializing. I mean, there was a reason why recently actually a bunch of European powers were complaining openly about the fact that that well, it seems like we're taking all the costs and the U.S. Is, is getting richer because what's happening, the U.S. is selling its own fossil fuels to Europe uh, at a higher price, um, taking advantage of, the, of this of this kind of position that's it's pushed them into taking. Um, meanwhile, because of the energy crisis, all these industries in, in Germany and, and, and other countries are packing up and, and going and they're actually moving They're offshoring to the United States. Um, you know, the people have talked about it looks like Europe is deindustrializing as a result of the fact that it's basically just mindlessly gone along with what Washington uh, wanted instead of charting its own foreign policy. And so we don't want to be in that position. We don't want to take, uh, a, 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 you know, take a step just because we say, oh, you know, our security partners, to, to use a phrase that has been thrown around before, our security partners are doing this one thing. So therefore, we should just do what they do uh, and, and follow along regardless of what that means to us. I mean, New Zealand needs to, to number one, look out for New Zealanders first and, and, and look out for its own security, whether it's in terms of physical security or economic security, number one. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Andre, maybe you can, you can weigh on this as well, but I think Ukraine is kind of a bit of a... Uh, cautionary tale there as well, where Ukraine's economy uh, was very dependent on, on the eastern part of the Donbass, which was heavily dependent on trade with Russia. Um, yep. And then you had the, the western part, which was very anti-Russian culturally, 
and more pro-Western uh, culturally and wanted to move away. But they, they sort of wanted to have their cake in here too. They wanted to move away from Russia, but they somehow wanted to keep yep. um, the engine of the, of the Ukrainian economy and they couldn't. And then what's happened is that the country split and, and there was a civil war and then finally oh. it's, it's ended in this tragedy that we're seeing yeah. now. So, I mean, we don't want to go down the same road. No, no, absolutely not. And But not wanting to and not doing something in our, you know, against our best interests is one thing and then doing it anyway is another thing. Just, just, <laughs> just uh, uh, to, to, totally agree with Europe and it seems like I don't know whether that's total incompetence and stupidity on behalf of the European leaders or whether they knew what they were doing, but they were somehow forced to do it. It is coming to a head recently, and you're totally right. There there are more, like Macron is talking about it. Orban, of course, seems to be you know the only one, and whatever you think about him, he's the only one in Europe who seems to chart somewhat of a, uh, you know, uh, contrarian, you know, independent policy, quote which is Which is crazy, given what Orban is. Yeah, yeah, to- to- totally. But but it's uh, it is, so it is, so it is quite interesting. Uh, the there is a uh, highly ranked uh, EU official pulls out of the US summit over climate law dispute because he basically says uh, you're screwing us and uh, I should be looking after the European uh, you know European e- economy and, and uh, so he he didn't want to go to the US. Uh, the uh, I I am so an interesting bit and I, and I'm not sure whether the US. Or there, there were parties in the U.S. that planned this because there are way too many consequences for the European economy, the deindustrial. So Europe loses in many regards. And there had been people in uh, going back to the 1950s, 60s, 70s who were actually suggesting that um, uh, the Axis, uh, Paris, Berlin, and Moscow should basically align and integrate. Oh. Uh, about the the moral sort of uh, you know hysteria, yeah, I I don't think uh, Cold War had this. I don't think there was a demonization of Russia ever, and uh, you know as as it is happening now. But that's neither here nor there. The um, uh, effectively, Russian economy and the European economy are complementary. Russia supplies Europe with, frankly speaking, cheap and reliable uh, gas and oil. Europe, uh, so in particular Germany, turns that into high-value-added uh, goods, or turned, used to turn it into high-value-added goods, uh, and were able to win on the global markets because the cost base, the energy cost base was so low. Now that uh, you know sanctions is one thing, uh, and they went along with it. The other thing is, of course, just just sabotage of the Nord Stream. I mean, this 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 is. Uh, that went out of the news quickly. Yeah, yeah, right. Because uh, and and apparently, like uh, now, uh, both uh, Sweden, Berlin, and uh, and I think uh, uh, Denmark uh, all basically said, "Yeah, we know who did it. We just can't disclose it." Which means it's not Russia who did it, <laughs> because it is so freaking transparent. I mean, with all the Biden saying, "Oh, one way or the other, it's not going to work." You know, they're like this thing is not, not going to exist. Uh, so you've got that. U.S. wins in multiple ways. First of all, they destroy a massive competitor. Uh, second, they attract the uh, uh, the massive competitor to the you know to to the U.S., which means what? Which means uh, technologies, uh, IP, and so on and so forth. There will be people going. Longer term, it's really terrible for Europe because as soon as you industrialize, you um, you you don't have research and development anymore. 
you you know the uh, education suffers and so on and so forth so and so there there are these are the two ways uh, so you remove the competitor you uh, attract the competitors so you increase your own uh, uh, te te technological base and third one is you sell a much more expensive uh, uh, energy resource to Europe, who is now dependent. So I don't understand. Again, there is the rhetoric like we need uh, we need uh, energy independence from from Russian energy. I don't even think that's a good idea because Russia was interested in supplying cheap energy to Europe because that's literally all that the Russian economy is to date. Over the last thirty years, they had deindustrialized de 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 the Soviet legacy and. All that the Russian oligarchs were doing was digging shit up from the ground and selling it to Europe. And, and to they were not interested, like there's a lot of rhetoric that uh, Putin wanted this to destabilize Europe. That's bullshit. He, he wanted stable, rich Europe paying for the Russian energy and just living off of it. That, that was the dream. That was the dream of, of uh, most of the Russian oligarchs uh, because they're not actually producing anything themselves. So... Yeah, so and and then US uh, and Norway, because obviously Norway is not part of the European Union, uh, they have their own oil, and they're experiencing uh, <laughs> abnormal profits. So they're profiteering from this war. Uh, Norway, I think, by accident, but the US, I, I, it's, I would be surprised if they hadn't calculated these things through. So at least in the medium term, in the short and medium term, they are profiteering from the war in multiple ways. Europe is has shot itself in. In in both feet, and kneecapped itself, and and has and is you know uh, basically I I don't know this is this is uh, this is yeah. amazing now y y Ukraine is a very is a very good cautionary tale of aligning yourself with the with uh, with the West I guess and not having an independent uh, uh, policy right so the multinational companies moved in bought up a lot of Ukrainian fertile land uh, in 2021 Zelensky uh, signed off on a um, law that actually allowed ownership I believe like ownership of Ukrainian land by foreign companies so uh, there there's a lot of um, foreign agricultural companies that are owning land in Ukraine there's uh, basically Ukrainian people have lost have been losing since since uh, since the independence because let's face it nobody's interested in building stuff up the what is what is of interest uh, to everybody is extracting the resources i here is why i do think that between the um, you know talking about BRICS and talking about uh, china and china's belt and road initiative and so on and so forth all of these initiatives are not, you know, purely altruistic and not for free. What? But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. Huh? Uh, but it it seems that the BRICS approach, and uh, you know, and, and Russia is part of that, um, is is still more of a looking for win-win rather than looking for the extraction of stuff. And again, that that uh, that research that. Uh, the uh, somebody presented at the uh, United Nations University that's uh, easily available. Uh, that that was the, you know, that's a good case study. So Ukraine is really good case study of um, well, insane ideology on one hand, uh, but the other, uh, basically becoming a completely 
effectively a proxy and not in a good way because there's there's nothing that is done for the benefit of the Ukrainian people hadn't been over the past 30 years way be, way before the you know in 2014 and whatever and it could have been it's it's an incredibly rich country in the resources uh it it had we had uh, 52 million people at the at the independence now there's probably 28 i don't know it's it's, it's just uh, and and the depopulation of ukraine had been happening over over decades anyway oh one uh, I, I i reached out to somebody from kherson and um uh, asked you know what was the uh, what was the impact of maidan and basically he said if you want one one major impact of the uh, Euromaidan of the of the Maidan revolution, uh, it's this: after 2014, seven million Ukrainians had basically left the country to seek work, and it's not high, highly paid work elsewhere, mostly in the in the European Union. You know, becoming uh, cleaners, uh, au pairs, drivers, and so on. Seven million people. Okay, that's like almost two New Zealands. Uh, and, and if you look at the uh, working capacity of New Zealand, it's definitely no. It's it's more. It's probably three three working New Zealands. Yeah. So just left the country because there had been a tremendously negative economic development since 2014. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of this kind of comes down to the neoliberal development, and we talk a lot about kind of the collapse um, of the entire, I suppose, Eurasian economy after the Soviet Union collapsed and that kind of looting by oligarchy and capital, finance capital, all that stuff. But it's 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 funny though, right? Because when we talk about an independent foreign policy from the perspective of a small state, we're thinking about kind of power analysis, right? Like we keep coming back to like the Eurasian Economic Union, like Branko brought up the non-aligned movement. Um, there's the kind of, there was the old kind of thinking of like first world, second world, third world as these kind of, um interactions or ways of kind of being um but i i genuinely don't think a lot of kind of liberals for want of a better word progressives or whatever are, are thinking like that at the moment it's not a power analysis when they're talking about whether it's independent foreign policy or like the uh almost performative kind of morality around like picking a side like it's the it's like international affairs is like the the dip herd trial it's not a fucking like it's it's embarrassing right there's there's no kind of um a deeper as you say kind of real politic desire to look for a win-win relationship there the same happens in domestic policy as well uh right the uh, as as uh, economists like even economics 101 uh, you have a uh, free market gives you the best possible outcome under like six assumptions and those assumptions are uh, free information, free entry and exit, uh, basically price taking, not price making, which means that no, but no single actor has uh, any economic power. Uh, because as soon as you, and as soon as you violate any of those assumptions, you're getting into the free market, not delivering the most optimal outcome. And oh, it, it's what is really fascinating is that you have that, and it's really economics 101. And then the outcome that everybody, uh, you know, the 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 free marketeers go out of that. Yeah, we should have more free markets. Like, no, that doesn't fucking exist anywhere in the real world. Is there's, there's not a single example of a free market. It is like even from the economics one or one point of view, all the markets are oligopolistic, sometimes monopolistic. 
if you are talking about the relationships between uh, companies and employees, you 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 have one company, many employees, one to many. You 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 know, employees are clearly unless they bend together in unions, they don't have any uh, any uh, um, economic power, any negotiating power. So what happens then? They get screwed. And that's really like you know because they get paid. Everybody gets paid the out the outside value. What's the outside value of somebody with no power? Nothing. It's zero. So so you get screwed. And it's like it, it, that is neither morally right nor socially optimal, um, nor meritocratic. And yet nobody talks about it. And the same so, thing can be can be exposed and uh, sorry sorry can be then extrapolated to the to the foreign policy as well. Sorry, no, go on. That's fine. The the New Zealand foreign policy debate is unfortunately uh, one of the clear things it lacks uh, is any discussion about what makes sense for New Zealand and what is in New Zealand's interests, which you know um, is basically the core of what any country's foreign policy should be or is. It's it's thinking about what makes sense for the actual country, what's going to benefit the people of that country, and that's completely absent. It's it's mostly surrounds uh, talk about values, which I'll be sympathetic to if those values were consistently applied. But we only really talk about upholding these liberal values when it comes to um, a, a, a country that is an adversary of you know basically the United States. Uh, when the United States obviously does stuff that is contrary to those values, we stay silent and we stay say very little. So it, it, that's the frustrating thing. And, and the thing that's really dangerous about this, we've talked about some of the economic stuff, but you know, let's also think about what exactly New Zealand's history has been. As a small power that has often, often been connected to larger powers, um, you know, either informally or, or you know, it's part of an empire, um, we have been dragged serially into conflicts and wars that have had nothing to do with us, that were not in our interests, that were not even about upholding any sort of values or principles that were just purely, we were just, saying, yes, me too, uh, let's let's join in. And, and we suffered for it greatly. Every year we have a day, Anzac Day, that we gather for and we, we, we think about and mourn the lives, the New Zealand lives that were lost in these largely pointless conflicts. I mean, World War I, I think 10% of the New Zealand population went to war. Um, and I think, you know, tens of thousands of those people were killed. It was a, it was a massive, um, uh, killed or wounded. I mean, it, it was a devastating, devastating war for New Zealand. It wasn't anything to do with uh, with any sort of values or, or, you know, standing up for, you know, what's right and wrong. It was just a, a stupid imperial uh, conflagration that we got dragged into. Now, do we, as... as the world, once again, as the U.S. seems to be, you know, the, the U.S. government at the moment seems to be kind of pushing for expanding its existing alliances and creating new alliances. And as we kind of move towards possibly another world war, um, this one, which is not unlike World War II, has very little to do with what's good and, good and right and, and what's wrong. It's just really about power politics. Do we really want to see ourselves in the position that we get dragged into another, this time potentially even more horrifying uh, and destructive war uh, because, you know, we are living in a nuclear age. Does that really make sense? Is that what New Zealanders want? Do they do they want a tiger on their backs for, for something that, that really, at the end of the day, again, this is just a tug of war between great powers? Um, I, I think not. I, I think um, we've had plenty of cautionary tales in our own history of why we need to, to chart an independent foreign policy. Now, the question is, 
how do we force um, our politicians to, to, to take that step? Um, I think part of it is we have to persuade, I think, a lot of the, the, the New Zealand population first, um, because I think people are not very well educated about this stuff. Um, it's not their fault. You know, this is complicated stuff, and there's a lot of bad information out there. So we need to start doing that, number one. But then we need to really push, put pressure on, on our politicians um, to do the right thing. I'm glad Jacinda Ardern has been a little more measured than, than most of our politicians. It's... Unfortunate, but, uh, you know, with every war, you're going to find plenty of uh, politicians scrambling and falling over each other to, to look tough and to, to use the conflict to, to make themselves uh, feel bigger than they really are. Um, and, and this is no different, but we need to resist those forces. So hopefully Sandy will prevail because, uh, you know, I don't think, again, looking back at history, none of this stuff has been very good for New Zealand. Really hasn't. How how do we do that? What's the, what's the forum? Because obviously... Uh... You know, like uh, uh, one of two hundred is great, but uh, <laughs> what do you mean? Where's the intellectual media if you in are... existence? <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, but subscribe. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, that no, that's great. But uh, but let, let's so there, there's a lot of independent stuff. But the, but there is independent stuff. Uh, I mean, for a mm-hmm. reason uh, <laughs> because it's not picked up by the main mainstream media is still mainstream, right? And um, the independent voices, like how do we reach a critical mass where we can actually uh, create a forum, or or is it it it's uh, and and there are two different ways, right? Either you go broad. Or you go deep uh, for you know and, and have a, a forum with few people, but those who who are the influencers and the decision makers, you know, then then you you can have that conversation. And possibly both are important, but like, are we talking in, on the margins? Because it seems like you know, we are relatively yeah. speaking. No, the, yeah, but mean, how do we? So what? What? Yeah. So so I'm I'm with you hundred percent. Like that is that is needed. Just another thing, as you were talking about, with the, we don't seem to have a debate uh, about what's best for New Zealand. It seems like we're starting from the position: is what is our goal? What's best for New Zealand? Oh, it's to be aligned with the with our strategic partners, and that is the US and Australia and and the UK. Okay, right. so that's it. And then everything else comes from what's our foreign policy? Well, it's yeah. to get our street. So what's best for New Zealand is to be aligned with those guys. Okay, so we just follow whatever they do. Um, Changing politics is not an easy, easy thing. Uh, it's, yep. you know, this, this podcast is one very small uh, attempt to do that in, in one sphere, the media I, sphere. I, but of course, you know, it's, it's I'm disgusted that, that you'd refer to us as very small, uh, Franco. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We do, we do have uh, five or so po- uh, co-hosts now, five or six co-hosts. So, you know, that's maybe yeah. I'm being unfair. But, you know, yeah, we, it's, it's, it's all the same stuff. There needs to be a, a movement, a wider movement, uh, a socialist movement or you know a broadly left movement one that's not that that's divorced from neoliberal not attached to the the neoliberal parties that dominate um New Zealand politics I mean that's you know it's that's not a very sexy answer it's that's it, it, it's um you know that doesn't really exist in New Zealand at the moment um hopefully it will there's some signs some things happening but so what what is basically what, what I'm thinking of you know there are historical precedents for for these things because there seems to be a lot of dissatisfaction, right? It it had been diluted and diverted into the uh, culture wars uh, after, but in 20, 2008, uh, you know, 2009, there was a lot of um, sort of like the system is broken, right? We need to fix the system. Now nobody talks about it. Why? But there still is a lot of dissatisfaction from, by all accounts, the U.S., you know, the, our generation now uh, in the U.S. is the first generation that lives worse than their parents um or or so i keep reading 
these are, you know, there is erosion of the middle class again over the past uh, 30, 40 years. Interestingly enough, coincides with the uh, breakup of the Soviet Union and uh, and the um, United States basically becoming the uh, the only uh, superpower for a while. I would would uh, rephrase what you said about the. I don't think U.S. is is trying to expand uh, the alliances. I think it's trying to hold on to the uh, to the stuff that it uh, it enjoyed ten years ago, uh, and I and I think it's losing. And I think that uh, this is very dangerous. Expand it in the sense of. Uh, by having New Zealand and Japan talk at NATO, which of course these countries are not. Oh right, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's that, that that's is, what I mean. Yeah. It's the, the um, that's the World War One fear that the the alliances yeah. are going to become so big and interlocked that if, yeah. if you get a war somewhere, it drags everyone else in there. No, this this this. Uh, I personally find that uh, com- completely completely dangerous and. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, way back in 1997, there was a group of 50 um, foreign policy experts in the United States that wrote an open letter to uh, President Clinton about, you know, let's do not expand the NATO uh, because you will, uh, it will be counterproductive. And uh, they predicted the rise of uh, authoritarianism and hard- hardliners in Russia as a result of that. They said we, and there were people like McNamara and um, uh, Susan Eisenhower, Eisenhower's uh, granddaughter, and and they were uh, basically signed this open letter, and they said uh, the, the expansion of NATO uh, to then Poland, I think Romania and Hungary, something like that, uh, would be would would lead to bad things. It will not in, it will not increase security. It will in fact increase insecurity, because it will uh, lead to the rise of hardliners in Russia, and uh, will 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 basically turn something that's pro-Western into something that's anti-Western. And everything they said in that letter came to be. So yeah. there were people. Um, I, interestingly enough, for all the you know U.S. kind of Washington criticism that uh, U.S. is still more open to you know in in free speech and to the debate interestingly enough than europe is i find in europe just just outlawed debate altogether uh there's also very little debate in the uk uh, as far as i can and uh, we we don't really have debate here about the um you know the current conflict but in the us you could still hear the dissenting voices even on relatively major uh news networks so that's good um but uh back to yeah back to this how do we do it it's uh how, how do we do it right do we do we reach out to the other independent uh you know uh voices and and because we need talking about it is one thing and i think it's a really important first step but if we just talk about it and do nothing on top of that 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 but that it will go into the neither and just kind of you know live in the cloud and whatever but uh there needs to be like do we write to the local representatives do we have a do we organize a uh um, a forum do we organize a live event uh which we could stream where we invite uh various politicians all, all of those things i mean uh just organizing in general whether it's you know letter writing campaigns whether it's uh you know just general kind of um political uh, political education um 
you know, a, a linking a, a wider kind of left wing movement to the to the, the union uh, movement and, and, and workers, uh, you know, starting a political party, which is very easy in New Zealand compared to other countries, um, all these things. Um, you know, I mean, look, New Zealand once upon a time was governed by a, a party that, that um, whose, whose goal was to, to move the country towards socialism. It was called the Labour Party. Um, it was made up of, of, of workers. I've never heard of these uh, yeah, yeah, and then, you know, some some stuff happened in between that that kind of went wrong, but that did happen once upon a time. It doesn't mean it can't. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, be, but yeah, people have to organize. I want to note as well. We have been we've been looking westward um, because that's where all this all the stuff's happening at the moment, and that's where our connections are, and that's what is ripe for critique. Um, but we're here in the Pacific. Uh, by any kind of geopolitical sense, we should be aligned with the global south. Um, we're seen as a military asset here by the big powers. Um, some of our greatest achievements have been in alignment with the other Pacific nations. Um, we had a podcast with Marco de Jong um, a few months ago about RIMPAC. Um, I'll put a link to that in the summary here. Uh, he gives some like, incredibly good insights into exactly how we could as, um, as communities and then as a, as a nation uh, push back uh, as an independent uh, foreign policy. Uh, I'll say power, um, even though, you know, in a relative sense, um, that that quickly kind of gets overshadowed. Uh, so, yeah, there's plenty of different things to do. I think we're seeing movements uh, kind of spring up all over the world as well. Um, I think as well, you'll find that if you're speaking to someone uh, in your day-to-day life, a lot of people are very much more aware of the nuance uh, than we expect of them. Uh, a lot of our interactions are online, on Twitter, um, on Facebook, uh, and they're polarized by nature of that. Uh, but conversations that I've, I've had, even with like uh, presumably non-political or right-wing people, they understand the nuance and they are closer in agreement with our independent left-wing podcast than they are with um, kind of electoral politics, either on the right or the left. I think that's what we're seeing more than anything else as a an acceleration of the powerful uh, in terms of what outcomes they want uh, against the the wider public. Um, and there will be a breaking point for that. And whether it's driven by a crisis or we just eventually reach it um, is, is the big question. I think well, we will... Well, but we have to... It's not enough to just rely on conditions. We also have to have, oh, have those face-to-face conversations. So that's the other thing, yeah. I think we'll we'll wrap it there. This has been a a marathon uh, discussion, a <laughs> bit longer than our normal podcast, but it's been really good um, to get so much of the historical context um, as well as kind of some in-depth analysis uh, of the different interactions um, occurring uh, across the globe and and the way that New Zealand um, kind of faces those. So thanks for joining us, Andre. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Hey, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah. Would highly recommend people to follow me because I'm trying to grow the audience as well. <laughs> I'll put um, I'll link to Andre's Twitter um, in the summary as well. Uh, thank you to my co-host. Thank you, Branko. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, guys. Uh, good stuff. And if you've enjoyed this, uh, as uh, Branko laughingly said um, earlier, like, share, subscribe, uh, throw us a few dollars. Um, Patreon link will be in the summary as well. That's been another week of one of two hundred. We'll maybe catch you over Christmas, uh, but we'll see how it goes. Have a good one.
relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full Hey